If you're a guest with us, you've happened to have joined us when we're in 2 Corinthians. And we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 15. But again, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we have the freedom and the liberty to come here without fear, without worrying about anyone knowing we're here gathered, like so many of our brothers and sisters around the world need to. Uh, we thank you that we can even have this speaker going out on the street right now as people walk by to hear the word proclaimed. So Lord, we thank you for this freedom. Help us not to take it for granted, but to always be appreciative of the fact that we, you've given us this freedom here in this country to read your word openly, to pray together, to study together, to proclaim that we believe in you. So help us understand it, Lord. Your Holy Spirit is our teacher, so we invite you, Lord, as I share my thoughts on it, we invite you, Lord, to do the interpretation in our hearts and help us understand this passage. And, and most of all, help us to apply it to our lives, Lord, to let it do its work in renewing our minds and making us more like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. We're in First, uh, Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 15. And in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this to you? Just a moment, I moved my bookmark. <laughs> Second Corinthians 5 from verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves... It is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So before we dig into this passage today, I want to jump back two weeks ago and just say a few things that I missed or I, uh, I discovered after preaching the sermon. And um, that sermon is uh, verses 1 through 10. And it talks about that we are like, our bodies are like a tent, a temporary dwelling, but that our eternal building is coming. And, you know... I, it's good for us to always look back in Scripture, especially in the letters from Paul, because he's always he has a biblical mindset. His his mind is full of Scripture, the Old Testament. He grew up in the Old Testament, eating, absorbing, memorizing the Old Testament. And so, when you think of tent, what do you think of in the Old Testament? The tabernacle. 
You know, when Moses was on Sinai, God told him to build this. He gave him, took him actually up into heaven, showed him what it was to look like, and told him to build it like what he saw in heaven. And so he gave him all the dimensions, all the, the material and everything. That was the tent. But the tent was temporary. And so Paul's saying our bodies are like that tent. But there's an eternal building coming. Well, what would the eternal building be in the minds, that kind of mindset? The temple. The temple that Solomon built. That those huge, enormous stones that some of which you can still see today in Israel and the foundation of the temple. So I, I just wanted to share that so you, because I think that's what he's thinking of. That, that permanence of that solid structure. That's our new home. Our new bodies are going to be. And together, Peter says, we make up the temple of the living God, each of us as a living stone. The other point that really spoke to me is in, in chapter 5, verse 5, he told us the Holy Spirit is our guarantee of that eternal dwelling. Well, do you know what that word guarantee today means in Hebrew? The, the word that's used here, I'm sorry, in Greek, the current modern Greek usage of this word means an engagement ring. Isn't that awesome? The Holy Spirit is our engagement ring that we will be married to Christ. We will, we will be part of that marriage feast of the Lamb that's spoken of in Revelation. Amen. I just thought that was an amazing thing, and I saw it after I preached it, so I needed to share it with you. So now on to today's passage. Verse 11, the first part. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So whenever you see a therefore, you need to go back and see what it's there for, right? I thought you were all going to say that in unison. In the previous paragraph, Paul was teaching us that our bodies are like tents and that they're wearing out, but we have this heavenly home, our eternal bodies, eternal bodies without a sin nature that will be swallowed up. That old tent is going to be swallowed up by life. Love that expression in verse 4. The Spirit of God in us guarantees that day is coming. It, it's our assurance, and that's why Paul says we are of good courage. We know that day's coming. We walk by faith, not fixated on this passing world, but aiming to please God in everything that we do. We know we'll give an account of our lives to God. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Do you see the connection? We're going to give an account to God for our, how we lived out this life of, with Christ in us. You know, we used to have this elderly couple. They were from Green Valley in southern Arizona, and they would come every winter. Now, this was years ago, and they came for about three or four years. I think probably they've passed on since, but um, every year, the husband would get on this topic of the fear of the Lord, and he would say, it doesn't mean fear, it means reverence. It just, when I found out it means rev just meant reverence, I was so excited. Well, reverence is one aspect, but the word does include fear of judgment and, or discipline. Now, when you stand before Christ, you're not going to be judged because Jesus took your punishment for you, but Paul's kind of saying, you know, he's pointing back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when he says, 
Everything that we've done when we stand before Christ will be tested by fire. I don't want to stand before him and have this monumental pile of ashes. That's the fear of the Lord. I want to stand before him and see something that's lasting that I can say, look what you did through me, Lord, how gracious you are, how wonderful you are. And Jesus died for all our sins, but scripture tells us he chastens those he loved. If we continually habitually sin, we are trampling on the grace of God, the author of Hebrews writes. It's spiritually healthy to fear the Lord, for the scripture tells us that it causes us to turn away from evil. That's Proverbs 16, 6. We should love him and fear him at the same time. In fact, that's a commandment in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. Now, Paul asked if we should continue in sin that grace might abound in Romans chapter six. And then he answers, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Acts 9.31 tells us that the early church walked in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplied. The fear and comfort sounds kind of contradictory unless you know the nature of the Lord. The fear of the Lord restrains us from allowing our old natures to dominate our lives. And when we walk in the Spirit, it attracts others to Jesus. Maybe this is one reason the church is, is dwindling in the Western world. We're losing the fear of the Lord and allowing our old nature to dominate us. We want the comfort, but we avoid the fear of the Lord. We have no fear of standing before a holy and righteous God and declaring how we wasted our time and resources, or even worse, ignored the leading of the Holy Spirit and shunned the opportunities that God put before us. So knowing the fear of the Lord, Paul writes, we persuade others. Knowing that the just wrath of on unrepentant sinners are gonna face puts our hearts a desire to persuade others to repent and to receive Jesus as their savior. This had, has been the passion behind many successful spirit-led evangelists. If we recognize how destructive sin is and the justice it deserves, we'll have the passion to persuade others. How can we not want to rescue them by pointing them to our gracious Savior who's ready to forgive and has paid the penalty unless, of course, we harden our hearts? Do we really know the fear of the Lord? Apparently, it was one of the driving forces behind Paul's successful ministry. When I, as I was writing this, I flashed back on, on the trip we had to Israel and one of the, we were at the, the upper room, not the traditional one, I think the Greek Orthodox one that I think is the real one. And I was sharing and we were singing praise songs and uh, the wife of one of the leaders was off by herself just weeping. I mean, you could see her sobbing. And uh, I didn't get to talk to her that day, but the next day I said, God was speaking to you, wasn't he? And she said, she said, I could hear people crying out, save me, save me. 
as they were going to hell. May God give us a passion to share salvation that Jesus offers. Paul's fear of standing before God and giving an account kept him continually seeking God's direction. It was one of the things that made him such a radical world changer. He invested every moment in serving the gracious God who opened his eyes to the indoctrination that led him down that hard-hearted path he'd been on. And knowing the great investment of grace and mercy that God had bestowed on him, how could he stand before God if he rejected that call? How could he not persuade people to turn to God? It was not with persuasive or rhetorical skills like orators, but with sincerity and integrity of heart and great conviction. The last half of verse 11, but what we are is known to God and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Paul's conscience was clear. He knew that God knew he was completely surrendered to the will of God and ready to do whatever God called him to do to see others saved. It had nothing to do with personal benefit or glory. He lived in such a way that he could say something similar to what Jesus asked when he said, which one of you convicts me of sin? Check your conscience and see if you see any wrong actions or motives in my life is what he was asking. That's a bold statement or bold question to ask. But it came from a man who knew that he was fully surrendered to God. That was his persuasive power, the power in his preaching. It was his sincerity and his life. May we all come to that point by the grace and mercy of God. Verse 12, we're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Paul's not giving them a new letter or, uh, or recommendation or his calling or reviewing the mighty works that God had done through him. He's sharing his heart for the Lord and his faith in God and God's promises. When his detractors start deriding his appearance, his illness, his oratorical lack of eloquence, Paul wants the Corinthians to be able to point to his heart not anything external. As he wrote in the end of the last chapter, what matters is not what is seen, but what is not seen, the unseen things. It's the opposite of what the false teachers were convincing the people about. Remember that God told Samuel that he was not to look on the outer appearance when he went to choose the next king because God looks at the heart. The heart of the speaker gives the power to the message. Some people boast about outward appearance even today. The heart of man hasn't changed. We can be impressed with homiletical skill or slick presentations or emotional appeals. But if the heart is in the wrong place, it's meaningless at best and may even detract from what God is doing. 
I noticed this when, when I was first called to preach, I would watch speakers and I tried to de determine what made one speaker more powerful than the other, more effective than the others. And eventually I realized it wasn't technique, it was their personal communion and commitment of their heart. It was sincerity and integrity that allowed the Holy Spirit to move through them while they're preaching. This led me to the biographies of men and women of God, who God had powerfully used in the past, and they all had something in common. And it has nothing to do with outward appearance or style. It was their time spent in communion with the Lord, almost always in the early morning hours. They met with the Lord and his word. Or as Paul said in chapter three, they beheld the glory of the Lord and they were changed into the same image from glory to glory. That's not just for pastors or preachers or missionaries or teachers, it's for every child of God. Your loving heavenly father gave his only son so you could be in fellowship with, with him through the Holy Spirit. If you don't devote the time, it's not gonna happen. We give the Lord our time and our service and that's wonderful, but if it's to have a lasting impact, we must give him our heart. That's most clearly seen in, in letting him have the limited commodity of time that he's blessed us with. Of course, we can live all the time for him. But what do you think your spouse would say if you never took the time to talk together from the heart? I know it's easy to get easier to get busy with all the things that before us that we think we need to do. But remember, Mary has chosen the good portion to sit at Jesus' feet and listen to his heart. Jesus wants that time for a love relationship with us. And that means taking the time to sit at his feet and share your heart with him and hear his heart for you and for the lost world around you. The Corinthians who were in the spirit knew Paul's heart. That was their answer that they were to give to Paul's opponents. They didn't know the hearts of the false teachers, but they knew Paul's heart. And, and that's of greater importance than any outward thing. Paul's treasure was Jesus and they knew it. The important thing for Paul was what was written on his heart by the Holy Spirit. He knew that was incomparably greater than any outward appearance. A commentator named Dodds explains this and relates it to our current time. He says, he writes this, the ironical tone in this unmistakable, in this passage is unmistakable, yet it is not merely ironical. From the beginning of Christianity to, to this day, churches have gathered around men and made their boast in them. Too often it's been a boast in face and not in the heart, in gifts and accomplishments and distinctions, which may have given an outward splendor to the individual, but which were entirely irrelevant to the profession or the possession of the Christian spirit. The same thing is seen every day on a smaller scale in congregations. 
People are proud of their minister, not for what he is in the heart, but because he's more learned or eloquent, more naturally capable than other preachers in the same town. That's the end of the quote. I couldn't say it any better than that. Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. One translator uh, translate the verse this way. If I act crazy, I did it for God. If I acted overly serious, I did it for you. You know, sometimes we Christians can act a little crazy in the eyes of the world. Think of David dancing before the Ark of the Covenant. Gideon taking an army of 300 to attack an innumerable enemy coalition. Or the shepherd, Moses, making demands of Pharaoh, one of the greatest powers in the world at the time. Paul's radical relationship with God makes him seem a little crazy at times. Because of this verse that follows this one, I think of this relating to how Paul must have got caught up in the ecstasy of the love of God. But when it came to shepherding the flock of God, he was down to earth and persuasive. Both were manifestations of the Holy Spirit in Paul, but expressed in different ways. One was uncontainable joy. The other was God's specific directions addressing mental faculties of the congregation's spiritual needs. And it reminds me of a true story I read a long time ago, but could never forget. A man wrote about visiting his uncle who was a priest and he'd gone on a sabbatical to this remote location. It was on a small lake. There was just one little chapel there on the lake and they had a nice quiet dinner together and they retired for the night. Early the next morning, he couldn't find his uncle anywhere. And so he went outside to look for him. His uncle was running skipping, jumping up and down as he went around the lake yelling, he loves me, he really loves me. That morning, you see, he had a revelation of the love of God for him in God's word. And he was overwhelmed by it, a little beside himself, kind of out of his mind. <laughs> These experiences are between you and God. If we were always in that mode, we'd be of little earthly good to build up the body of Christ. Both are controlled by the love of God. As verse 14 says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. We saw at the beginning of the passage that fear was a motivating factor for Paul fear of standing before a holy God and giving an account. But here's the other factor, the balance, love. It's the love of Christ that motivates us to be beside ourselves in worship and adoration, but also in our right mind for others. Christ's love is the influencing factor. He decides when to overwhelm us with his love and when we need guidance and the right words to feed the flock of God. He opens our awareness to the spiritual battle and to his mighty power. The reason the love of God compels us is that we agree with God that Jesus, the sinless one, died for us sinners. 
The wages of sin is death, and we deserve death. But the sinless one took the penalty we deserve upon himself. In him, we have all died. But the sinless one took that penalty that we might live. He died for the sins of the whole world, and that means the only ones who will be in hell are those who refuse to accept the forgiveness he purchased for them. They burn their pardon and insist on paying for themselves. That's a whole different kind of crazy. And I hope you'd be, rather be crazy about the love of God. Verse 15, And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him for, who for their sake died and was raised. Christ died to save sinners from the wrath of God. But here in this verse, Paul is telling us that the rest of the purpose of Jesus' sacrifice is the outworking of that forgiveness. The part of salvation is what, this part of salvation is what repels the convicted soul who will not repent. Everyone wants to go to heaven. No one who really understands the justice of God wants to go to hell but it's the outworking of receiving forgiveness that the unrepentant is unwilling to face. That is, that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him, for our sake, died and was raised. He, we, we who embrace the forgiveness of God find our hearts are changed. And we find the love of Christ causes our hearts to be filled with love for him and a desire to serve him. And we serve him by serving others. And that's what Jesus demonstrated to the disciples when he washed their feet just before he was betrayed. Our selfishness is transformed into selflessness, selfless service, for it is Christ in us, expressing himself through us. He said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. We must ask ourselves if we're living for ourselves or for the one who gave us life and laid down his life for us, because it's one or the other. This is one of those black and white statements that divide the sheep from the goats. We can't have it both ways. Is it a struggle? Of course it is. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. We're wrestling against cosmic powers, but we have a secret weapon, the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. And when we're in the word, our thought life is renewed to see what's really going on. It's not a burden as we might imagine it to be in our old nature because we reap what we sow. It is the upside down world of God's kingdom. Give and it shall be given unto you. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now the carnal mind can't imagine anything worse. The renewed mind though sees it as a glorious opportunity. We need to be honest about which mindset we have. 
I must add that when we try to deny ourselves and continually serve others in our own strength, we can burn out and give up. But when we learn to let the Holy Spirit direct us and we rely on His power, we experience the abundant life. Some people feel compelled to witness to everyone they meet, but they find little results that remain because they do it out of duty. But when we're led by the Spirit, rarely do we find ourselves drained. In fact, it's the opposite. Walking by faith is very different from being duty-driven, bound by the law. You know, some believers will set aside the Old Testament laws and then they'll recreate new ones that they think are, are God's way of the new life. But walking in the Spirit is real freedom. I'll never forget when the Lord showed me that He enjoys it when we enjoy Him. He has given us everything richly to enjoy. That's 1 Timothy 6, 17. When we need some downtime, He provides it. And by downtime, I mean appreciating Him and beholding His glory and all that He created for us to enjoy. Remember, God delivered Israel from the taskmasters in Egypt so that they could serve Him. He takes us out of the demands of the law to liberate us into the freedom of doing what He created us to do. As the Westminster Confession states, the purpose of man is to love God and enjoy Him forever. It's much, more, it's much richer and more fulfilling joy than anything our carnal nature craves. As Francis of Assisi said, it's in giving that we receive. And Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is not a taskmaster like those in Egypt. He delivers us from the taskmaster rules of the law. But we must always be aware that our old nature desires to reign in us again and would have us return to living for self. Jesus died and rose for our sakes. He died to pay the penalty of our sins. He rose that we might have that resurrected life. See his victory over death and hell and have hope for your own resurrection. He did it for our sakes, and that is love. And when we start seeing how great that love is, we naturally love him more. And when we love him more, we lo love those he loved and died for. So let us live not for ourselves, but for him. Let us live in the fear of the Lord, controlled by love and with a heart fully devoted to our Savior. Then our words will have that power, that integrity, that conviction from a life, a heart yielded to God, surrendered to Him. And the Holy Spirit will use those words to rescue souls. And I think that's what we all desire. Amen? Amen. Jill, would you lead us in the closing song? And then I'll give the benediction. <laughs>